Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 88 of Yogaland. Before I start the interview, I just want to say thank you for all the kind feedback about the episodes that Jason and I do together. They're really fun for us to do, and we are so happy and grateful that you take away so much from them. I don't have another Q&A plan just yet, but we do them every few weeks. So if a question ever comes up for you that you want to submit, you can send it to support at jasonyoga.com and I will add it to the file. Okay, so today's interview is with Robin Capobianco. Robin has been teaching yoga for nearly 15 years. She's a certified yoga therapist and a certified corrective exercise specialist, and she's based in Boulder, Colorado. A few years ago, Robin decided to get her PhD in the Neurophysiology of Movement Laboratory at the University of Colorado Boulder. And I ask Robin what that means at the top of the interview. <laughs> so I'm going to let you listen to her response because it's, it's, it's a lot more clear than I could ever make it. But in essence, Robin is studying how our senses, how the sensory system affects the nervous system, which affects movement and pain signaling and, and those kinds of things. And as I listened back to this interview that we did together, I thought, gosh, why didn't I go in that direction? Why didn't I ask her more about that? But what I do ask her about in this interview is very practical, I think, for all of us in the yoga field, because one of the things that Robin has done on the side as she's been getting her PhD is looking at yoga poses from a biomechanical perspective. And so I just thought it would be really interesting to ask her what are some things that have surprised her from assessing yoga poses this way, what alignment cues have been validated by her work. So we talk about twisting, we talk about Utkatasana, we talk about plank pose and how looking at plank from this lens has changed the way that she does plank. And one of the things that I truly appreciate about Robin is that she doesn't demonize any movements. She actually says there are no bad movements. There are movements that are not good for you at this time and in this space. And the important thing is to look at the movement and why something may or may not be right for your body at this time. So, you know, I think so many of us think of science and we're so excited. I am so excited that yoga and meditation are being so meticulously studied in lab settings. And I think there's so much to take away from that. And, and that's what Robin's doing. And at the same time, because Robin is a longtime practitioner and teacher, she sees the importance of also experiencing yoga and being discerning about what's happening in your own body. She's just a really great, broad, deep thinker. And I know you're gonna enjoy the interview, so I will stop babbling and let you hear from Robin. Robin, I'm so happy to have you here. Right now you are a PhD candidate at University of Colorado in the Neurophysiology of Movement Laboratory. So would you tell us what that means, what you're studying and, and why you felt compelled to do this deeper education? So thank you so much for having me. So I work in the Neurophysiology of Human Movement Lab. So we study how the nervous system controls movement. 
primarily, I like to tell our, our new students that we don't look at it necessarily from the brain. So I'm not a neuroscientist, I'm a neurophysiologist. So the things that we study, yes, we get the command signal from the brain, but most of what we're looking at is how that brain signal translates to the spinal cord, producing voluntary movements. And particularly what I study is how our sensory environment kind of informs our, our movement. So my research is focused on stretching with the addition of self-massage or self-myofascial release, and then how pain alters our movement patterns. I was a forensic anthropologist, so I really studied kind of the brick and mortar pieces of the body. So bones, muscles, movement. And, and again, like you were saying, this is what we think of when we think in terms of movement. And over the course of my studies and my training and teaching, and I worked uh, in the medical device industry in spine for a long time, I started to get the sense that these, what I would call brick and mortar explanations, so really bones and muscles, wasn't enough. Like it wasn't, it wasn't showing me or teaching me kind of how things were really happening because I worked with people with back pain on a daily basis for over 10 years. And I worked with surgeons who went and fixed these brick and mortar, you know, they went mm -hmm. and did spinal fusions or they went in and injected stuff into the spine. And some people would get better, but a lot of people wouldn't get better. Mm -hmm. And as I started, started really studying more and more about that, I started to become very intrigued about what is this? what I thought was this nebulous nervous system, like what is the nervous system, right? It's not, it's not something that I can put in a box where mm -hmm. I can say, this is a vertebral body. This is the spinous process. These are, you know, all of the different anatomical pieces. To me, it was very kind of like out there, something that was way, way over my head that I didn't understand. And I started to realize that the only way I was going to get the answers I was searching for was to go down that path. And so we moved to Colorado from San Francisco Bay Area about four years ago, and I decided that I, it would offer me an opportunity to further my studies. So I, I initially wanted to go to school at Harvard. Have you ever read The Story of the Human Body by Dan Lieberman? No, I haven't. Oh my gosh, it is the best book. Definitely put that on your, on okay. your radar. So my husband gave me this book, and as a forensic anthropologist, I was fascinated because it talked about kind of this evolutionary process of disease and how our current like movement disorders are really from the fact that we have this disparity between what we were evolved to do and what we do, right? Mm -hmm. So right now we're sitting, talking. <laughs> In front of a screen. <laughs> In front of a screen, right. right. And so I was really like, okay, I want to go to Harvard. I want to I wanna study with this guy. And my husband's like, we just moved. Can, can you at least see if there's anything in Colorado? And so I'm like, okay, fair enough. So I looked at University of Colorado Boulder, and I live an hour from Boulder. But their program was like, oh, my gosh. It was like a kid in a candy store where it was like, they have so many different labs in the Department of Integrative Physiology. I'm like, this is awesome. So I reached out to my current advisor, Roger Anoka, and he emailed me back. I was like, ooh, okay. We set up an interview. I went in to meet him, and you know, I didn't know who this guy really was. I hadn't done my due diligence. Uh -huh. I was just like, neurophysiology of human movement, that sounds super awesome. And so I went in there, and I'm like, 
you know, super enthusiastic. I'm like, I want to cure back pain. Like, you know, these, these brick and mortar explanations aren't enough. I want to know how the nervous system controls movement. And he's like, uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's how it all started. And so it turns out that he wrote the book, The Neuromechanics of Human Movement, and he coined the term neuromechanics. So mm-hmm. neuromechanics is really just a blend of neurophysiology and biomechanics. So what we do in our lab is really integrate the two. So people have heard of the term biomechanics and they, they tend to um, associate it with alignment in anatomy or in yoga, but it's so much more. And what we're really looking at is how our input, so our sensory input feeds our brain, which then goes back down to issue the motor command to how our muscles activate. Hmm. So you know, when we talk about muscles and movement, it really is nothing happens without your nervous system. Mm -hmm. The motor unit is the basic functional unit of movement, really. It's made of a motor neuron, which is a a nerve cell that lives in your spinal cord, the axon. So the little tail that goes from the motor neuron goes down to your muscles and then all the muscle fibers that it innervates. And our muscles have most of them have at least a hundred, if not several hundred motor units that innervate them. And so basically spark and give them life. So it's just, it's, it's really fascinating. I mean, I could go into, yeah, <laughs> I, won't, I won't right now. But. I love your enthusiasm. I'm sure your advisor loved your enthusiasm too at the time. <laughs> <laughs> at the time, at the time. Sometimes I think he doesn't necessarily appreciate my enthusiasm or. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So just to clarify and for those listening, we are, we're definitely going to get to yoga, I promise. But I just want to give you enough background on what Robin works on and, and give myself enough background, quite frankly. I'm just learning this for the first time, too. So just to clarify, when you say sensory inputs in the sense of what you're studying, what does that mean? Which sensory and what kinds of sensory inputs? So sensory input, we get sensory input from our eyes, so visual input from our ears, vestibular input. But what I'm really looking at is the skin. So when we talk about sensory input, we talk about different stimulation of the skin, of the receptors or the specialized cells that are in our skin, our fascia, our muscles, and our joints. Mm. So there's a great study that came out last year that looked at the, what we call the mixed peripheral nerve. So when nerves exit the spinal cord, you have sensory and you have motor nerves and they're all in one. So you think about the sciatic nerve, right? That's something that everyone's heard of, right? I got some sciatica. Right. In In that sciatic nerve, in that bundle, you have different motor axons, which send the command signal to your muscles. And you have sensory axons, which transmit information from touch, from your skin, from your muscles back up into the nervous system or back up into the spinal cord. And only 10% of the axons in that nerve. So think about your sciatic nerve actually is about the size of your thumb. That's how big it is. And only 10% of the bundles of axons in there are motor. The rest of it is all sensory. So that tells you that the nervous system relies on all of this information coming from your environment. And specifically when we're talking about yoga, I'm tied into yoga now, (laughs) um, you know, the information that we're getting from our sensory system, from our hands, from our skin, from our muscles. And so that's how it kind of determines the, the motor plan or the motor output, what you're actually doing. 
Um, so when a teacher comes and gives you an adjustment, hmm. right, and you get that kind of emotional sense, whether it's good, whether it's bad, like my Ashtanga teacher, she would touch me and I'm just like melt. I would become putty in her hands, right? But then she'd also move me in a way that is, again, her hand on my skin, on my muscles, on my body is sending information up into my brain and how we kind of input information is more than just, you know, activating our muscles, right? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. It makes me think of Reiki, you know, which is a, have you ever had anyone do Reiki on you? No, I haven't. Yeah. So I, I only have a few times I've been in a massage appointment where the person has said, Oh, I do Reiki. You know, you have a really, really taut area right here that I don't want to just kind of attack. I'd like to sort of soften it first with a little bit of energy work. And oh. I, I can remember this one specific example. And I said, sure. And well, I'm not an expert. I've only had it done once. But my understanding is that there's very little direct contact, like skin to skin contact. It's more energy work. And so she had her hands very close to my skin, but not manipulating the skin or the muscles or anything like that, the tissues. And, but I could feel the heat from her hands on oh, my skin. Yeah. And it was amazing. It really worked. <laughs> and I couldn't. <laughs> Yeah. I didn't question it. I didn't. And I, it's funny. I've never really, I, I've never sought it out as a modality for myself, but just what you were talking about makes me think about that instance of that, that palpable sensation of, okay, I don't know what's happening here, but it's affecting something very tangibly. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, and I never really thought about that. I mean, honestly, like so many of the things that I have learned over the past three and a half years in school, I never thought of, like, I never would have thought to seek these things out or even ask these questions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, like even with the, with the Reiki. Yeah. So when you go into the lab and the last time we spoke, I, I asked you because if people follow you on Instagram, which I do now, which is great. Thank you. You show in certain posts, you show some things that you've done in the lab. It's really fun to see. And so I asked you, how did you start measuring the yoga poses? Was this <laughs> sanctioned? Was this, um, <laughs> was this a project you were working on? Did, did the school think of it? So I'd love for you to, to talk about that a little bit about how you started to look at yoga poses in, in your lab. One of the reasons why I decided to go back to school again is, is because I was never really taught to question in my yoga education what we were doing. You know, I took a training with Jill Miller, who again has been on your podcast, and she is just a near dear friend and mentor to me. And she just blew my mind. I was like, oh my gosh, we can teach this stuff in yoga? Like hmm. I can I can teach directions of movement and planes of movement. And I can think about what muscles are doing. And she really taught me to question because she's like, why are you saying that? Why are you teaching that? I'm like, oh, I don't know. And mm. it's because I never thought of it, right? I don't think that it's really in our yoga culture to question the, you know, the quote unquote guru, right? right Which, right. you know, is not just, you know, the big gurus, but are also just our teachers. Like, why am I saying to relax your glutes? And mm -hmm. it doesn't make sense. So she really started me on this path. And when I started in the lab, I was working for a medical device company studying sacroiliac joint pain. And I decided to do a study um, in the applied biomechanics lab that looked at movement. So we 
in the applied biomechanics lab, they have a 10 camera motion capture system where they have 10 cameras all around the room and it can detect movements on the body when we place these special spherical reflective markers on different anatomical landmarks on the body. And then they also have a treadmill that has force plates, so a plate for measuring ground reaction force or the force the, the ground exerts upon your body when you're standing, moving, walking, doing whatever. So I was learning how to use the equipment there doing this study, and my colleague had been doing yoga, and she had stopped because she had a hamstring injury. And I said, you know, it would be really awesome to go in and to see, like, what are we really doing in asana? Like what's really happening when we're doing these different postures? Like, you know, and I made a list of all these cues where I'm like, should I be doing this? Hmm. Right? Like, should I be engaging my glutes and back bends? What's really happening? Should I really roll up from a forward fold? What's happening to my sacroiliac joint when I'm doing twists? Where is my center of mass or my center of gravity when I'm doing warrior three, when I'm doing, you know, why, why are people lifting their toes in Utkatasana? <laughs> and so I said, can, can we do this? And so we kind of, we didn't sneak, right? I mean, someone might listen to this podcast and go, <laughs> uh, you know, everything was totally sanctioned, but it really wasn't part of my project. I was really curious. And my advisor has a colleague who used an MRI, so magnetic resonance imaging, to look at different muscle activation in different weightlifting exercises. And so he made an atlas, a manual that, that shows all these. Oh, neat. Things. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's like, you know, that would be a great thing for you to do. Like, here's a suggestion. Cause I'm like, you know, in and of itself, what is it really telling us? Right. Um, it's not like I can publish an academic paper, which actually people have. And it's, it's not very interesting that just shows different muscle activation patterns, mm -hmm. but you know, what's really happening and what are we, these different cues that we're giving, number one, why are we giving them what's happening into the body? And can we see the difference? Like if you take a shorter stance in down dog versus a longer stance, or if you use a block and revolved side angle pose, um, if you put your hands over your head in warrior three versus at your heart, what's happening. And so I flew my friend Omni out who I love her and we have the most crazy discussions about yoga, but it's confirmational bias for me. So she and I believe the same thing. So <laughs> I wanted her to come out, <laughs> which is, you know, sometimes good and sometimes bad. <laughs> we got her all markered up and put 16 different electrodes on her to measure her muscle activity and got her on the treadmill and had her start doing things. And we've since done a couple more structured, again, still not sanctioned, study sessions to look at particular things. And yeah, it was really just out of a curiosity. I'm like, you know, in, in exercise, like in weightlifting and, and other modalities, they call it bro science. So hmm. I was just listening to a podcast with my friend, Dr. Trevor Benyon. He's like, okay, let's debunk the bro science myth of, you know, soreness is caused by lactic acid. And I was like, oh my gosh, like that's what we have in yoga. Like we have bro science and yoga, I think for so bro science just being like the accepted thing that gets passed down and gets sort of shortened and yeah. Oh yeah, that's true. The bro science is that you should never jump back to plank. You should always jump back to chaturanga or you should never squeeze your glutes in a back bend, right? It's like, it doesn't have any scientific background. It's uh -huh. just what people think, right? right? And without any real reason why. Uh -huh. and so 
we have all that growth science. Yeah. So, so just to clarify once again, I'm picking this up slowly. So when you were looking at the yoga poses with the electrodes on the body, that you, you were really measuring biomechanics, right? You were really looking at the muscle activation. So I was looking at joint angles, joint torque. So torque is a rotary force. So when your joints flex and extend, then that's producing torque. Mm-hmm. So just think about torque as, as force around an axis. Mm-hmm. So we can measure joint torque. So that's biomechanics. Biomechanics are joint torques, joint angles, ground reaction forces. So again, those forces that are coming up from the ground against you in, in response to something that you're doing when you're in contact with the ground. So those are all biomechanics. And then really where the neuromechanics comes in, that's the, the electromyography, the EMG. So that's measuring the electrical activity of your muscles while they're performing some sort of action or performing something. So I was looking at all of that. Okay. Interesting. So I'm going to put you on the spot for a moment. Was there any pose or anything that you saw that surprised you? Yes. So looking at twists and looking at the sacroiliac joint. So I worked for a company that, you know, we made a bolt for fusing the sacroiliac joint. And I learned a lot about the interesting anatomical kind of idiosyncrasies of the sacroiliac joint. It's the largest joint in the body, but there are no muscles that de- that directly cross the joint. Hmm. So when you think about your your elbow and you think about doing a bicep curl or bringing your hand to your shoulder, your bicep muscle crosses the elbow joint, the tendon inserts into the forearm and that causes the joint then to close or to flex. Mm-hmm. The sacroiliac joint, it doesn't have that. It doesn't have a muscle that goes on either side of it and it's got very little movement what we have is this huge basket weave of ligaments that hold it together. And then we have force coupling across muscles. So I got to give you a little bit of background mm-hmm. before I talk about how awesome this is. Yes. So we, when we think of muscles contracting, right? So if you just, you know, flex your elbow, you do a little bicep curl, you show me, you know, give me a ticket to the gun show. You see <laughs> that, your, that your bicep muscle shortens, right? It gets bigger. That's what gives you the gun. Mm-hmm. Um, but muscle force is not just transferred like within the muscle, bringing two things together. Whenever a muscle contracts, the force is actually also dispersed laterally, so to the sides, to muscles that are within the same compartment. So, you know, you have many different muscles in these different compartments in the body. And then there, the force is also transmitted along fascial lines. So within your body, you have all these different connections. And the most important one for the sacroiliac joint is the thoracolumbar fascia. So it's this dense sheet of connective tissue that actually connects the latissimus dorsi, so the big fan-shaped muscle on your back. Mm-hmm. Like you do a lat pull-down at the gym, and you can feel these, these 
big, this big sheet of muscle on your back. And it connects that into the gluteus maximus, the, mm. the big muscle. And so for the sacroiliac joint, what's really important is whenever we walk, we have this slight rotation in our pelvis and that's good. We want this, right? And it's the, what we'd say the contralateral. So say the right side glute and the left side latissimus dorsi. So force is transmitted between those muscles through this connective sheet of fascia, the mm. thoracic fascia. So if you think about your back to your butt as two big X's, as uh-huh. one big X, right? So left side to right side butt, right side shoulder to left side butt. So the sacroiliac joint for its stability depends on this coupling of those two muscles. And when think about it when we're doing a, a deep twist, right? what's happening, those muscles are being stretched in opposite directions. Right. So, you know, you're taking your left side lat away from your right side glute. Mm-hmm. Now, when we're sitting or we're doing a seated twisting posture, it's not really that important because we're not doing anything that's putting a lot of force on the sacroiliac joint in a, in a way that's going to cause it to be unstable. Mm-hmm. But when we're doing standing postures, so say you know, revolved side angle pose or revolved triangle or even side crow or grasshopper pose, you know, all these little bit more extreme poses, the more we start to rotate around, we find that those muscles are now not acting synergistically. So they're not working together to stabilize the sacroiliac joint. And that's where things can kind of go wrong. Like the Hmm. sacroiliac joint never really like pops out, but it's, it's held together by, again, these muscles, these ligaments, and that's called force closure. So, you know, force being, you know, the muscles acting on that. And then we also have form closure. So the sacroiliac joint is interesting is that it's, it doesn't have this really nice, like kind of flat bone on bone structure. So it's got this kind of concave and convex side that fit in together. And it has like these little kind of pits as we grow older, that have it sit in there pretty nice. And so that kind of keeps that together. But again, if we're doing a lot of these standing postures and we're just rotating around, I saw like surprisingly, I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is, (laughs) this is how we're messing up our sacroiliac joint. So let me just ask one question. So is it, is it more challenging on the sacroiliac joint when you're standing and twisting because of just gravity? Okay. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Because you have gravity and because you're usually moving in different planes of movement, mm-hmm. right? So the forces, if you think about when you're, when you're walking, so there are different forces that act on the body. There's compression, which is bringing things together. There's mm-hmm. tension, where it's bringing things apart. There's shear forces. So the sacroiliac joint experiences a lot of shear forces. So if you take, you know, your left hand on top of your right, and you make a little sandwich and you slide them away from each other and you slide them towards each other. Those are shear forces. Mm-hmm. So there's the sacroiliac joint experiences a lot of shear force in the vertical direction, right? So up and down when we're walking. And then when we're doing that same thing in standing poses, right? So when we're walking, we want those, that muscular sling, we'll just refer to it as the, as the sling Mm -hmm. to support you. But think about when you're standing and doing a yoga pose and you're Mm -hmm. uncoupling that sling, you're taking that sling off. So that's why it's more, it's more susceptible to injury when we're standing. So tell me like, what would you see in like revolved triangle or revolved Parsva Kanasana? Like, what would you actually see on the monitor that was surprising? (laughs) 
<laughs> so I, I mean, I wish we had a visual and what I'll do is I'll send you a, a picture of this that you can post in the show notes so okay. people can see. It's Great. super cool. And, and I love You're to also very good at describing it. <laughs> Oh, okay. I'm totally following you. So yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah. So when we're looking at EMG or muscle activity, it's electrical activity, right? So we get to see like, if you've ever, have you done a voice memo on your iPhone? Yeah. You can see the little lines coming up and down that frequency, right? Right. That electrical activity. So that's what we see in EMG and electromyography. And so I can see these bursts of activity in your muscles while you're doing things. So I totally geek out. That it's. I'm sorry. I get so excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I see these bursts, and so what I saw is that normally you would want to see in in muscles that are working together, especially large muscles such as the lat and the glute, that the bursts of activity would number one overlap and be about relatively the same amplitude. So, you know, when we're talking about the amount of muscle activity. So when we did this first version of revolved side angle and I had Omni really rotate, I saw that, oh my gosh, like they're not working together. Mm. And so, you know, we see, oh, we're seeing this loss of force coupling across the sacroiliac joint. And I'm like, how can we get that back online? Right? Because that, that obviously is one of the things that, that leads to degeneration within the joint. Hmm. And so I said, well, what if you counter rotate, right? So you get all the way in. So say your, your right leg is forward, your right knee is, is flexed. So you're doing revolved side angle, mm-hmm. um, your left elbow is now on the outside of your right knee and you're twisting and you're trying to get your torso up towards mm-hmm. the ceiling. All right. So now once you get into that twist, you're going to hold it there. So you're holding it in this kind of uncoupled position. So instead of just holding it and keep looking up, 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 and getting this spiraling rotation going up, what if we kind of did this counter rotation while we were in it? So pushing your left elbow now against your your mm-hmm. right knee, but not in a way to try to get deeper into the twist, but almost to try to come out of the twist. Right. And then squeeze the legs together. And guess what we found? you got, you had more force coupling. Yeah. Yay. Was- Yay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So when you're, when you're doing the twist and you're not co-contracting, would you see more, you would see more activity in the lat than the glute? We saw more activity. I'm going to pull, I'm going to pull this up so that I can um, make sure that I'm speaking to that. Right. Because I think we saw more in the glute and not in the lat. Oh, wow. Okay but we saw more in the glute and less in the lat. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So, but it, it's very, I wish I could share this with you right now so that you could see, but I don't, I don't think you can do that. So that's great. And that's great practical information that people can take into their practice and try and, and notice the, just the sensation, the difference in sensation, even if you don't have SI joint issues, although I know that a lot of listeners do, I hear about it a lot. And I, did many years ago. And so it's something that I just am mindful of now. And so I just really have never pushed myself far enough too far that the injury has flared up again. But I do wonder as I age, if it will, (laughs) you know, because things just change. (laughs) They do. They do. And, you know, we have, especially after having children, Mm -hmm. we see these changes. In fact, 
as a forensic, former forensic anthropologist, one of the ways that we estimate age and sex is by looking at the sacroiliac joint. Wow, really? So, yeah. So oh we my see, gosh. <laughs> um, when we look at the sacroiliac joint and at the pubic synthesis, so, you know, all around that, that pelvic ring, but the sacroiliac joint gets more and more degraded as you age. So it becomes even more important to make sure that we're maintaining our, our bone health by wow. properly using our muscles to support our our skeletal structure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's super interesting. What else are there? Any are there other findings that you you know? I know that you teach a movement mechanics workshop, and we, we've talked about how many people come to that class in pain. You know, they've got some kind of acute injury or chronic injury or repetitive stress injury. And so, are there any things that you've learned from this project that you pull into that? class to help people? I do. So one of the other surprising things was plank pose and activation of plank pose. So we had electrodes monitoring muscle activity on the back muscles, but so specifically the erector spinae. So those big ropes that are alongside the middle of your spine. And then we also measured the obliques. So the internal and the external obliques. And so normally when we do plank pose, we tend to think about it as, you know, keeping this kind of straight line, this straight diagonal line from the shoulders down to the heels. And what I found with that is that, yeah, okay, you know, I have some activity in the back and some activity in the oblique, so in the abdominal muscle. When I had her kind of look back at her belly button and almost kind of round, so draw her shoulder blades away from each other. Mm -hmm. And then kind of activate her, what we would call the internal corset. So even just lifting up a little bit, instead of keeping that straight line, your butt's not lifted all the way in the air, but it's lifted higher that, you know, I've had my butt there and a teacher has come and told me to lower my butt. And I'm Hmm. like, oh, that's, you know, please don't tell me to do that now. But we found that again, those big bursts of muscle activity were higher now in the oblique. So using mm. more abdominals and the activity in the spinal muscles was exactly the same, mm. but now we're actually getting more activation into the, the quote unquote core muscles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now I do, I teach that a little bit differently. So if your shoulder blades are drawing together, um, you're not going to be able to activate all of those core muscles now as much as if you're drawing them away and you're kind of puffing up a little bit Mm -hmm. and you're keeping your hips a little bit more lifted instead of going for that straight line. Right. So it's not going for the visual, right, of the beautiful straight line, but going for the sensation. So do you feel like that activates the inner legs more too? And like, you know, I didn't look at the inner leg. I was just curious. I I just, I, I definitely have a person that yoga woke up my inner legs. So I just always think about my inner legs. <laughs> I just, I've just realized like through yoga, how that hugging into the midline was really missing for me before I did yoga. So, yeah. And you know, it's interesting that you talk about that because I think it, it was a study that I was, I was reading and talking to my husband. I'm lucky that I have an amazing resource just at the office next to mine. Uh, and what hu- does your husband do? <laughs> my husband is a sports chiropractor and okay. he's the medical director for rock tape. Oh. So I post a lot of things like from rock tape, like tonight in movement mechanics, we're going to use rock floss and we use rock tape and rock bands. And again, all this sensory input stuff. 
to help improve our, our motor output. Huh? Yeah. We were talking about, you know, I teach this kind of three week series on kind of around the world hip, our hip muscles, because of the way that we, we live, right. We're sitting all the time. And then, especially in Colorado, we do a lot of sagittal plane movements. So we're doing a lot of skiing and running and biking and things that are all propelling you forward. Mm -hmm. And we don't do a lot of things that are side to side, although, you know, people here do cross country skiing, but I'm trying to think of all the things that actually work your, your adductors, your inner thighs, but our, our inner thighs sometimes start to think that they're hamstrings and they, they like to help. Hmm. Right. So we have a saying in our household (laughs) that you know, your brain doesn't coordinate muscles, it coordinates movement, right? So what we're really looking at is how can we make sure that the movement that we're doing is utilizing the muscles that are designed to do that action? Mm-hmm. Because your nervous system is very efficient and it wants it, number one, it's very lazy. So it wants to use the least effort possible. And it also wants to, it wants to please, hmm. right? It wants to do whatever you want to do. So it'll find a way to make it happen, whether you're injured or a muscle is online or offline, or, you know, that doesn't really happen, but it's an easy way to think about it being online or offline. It will recruit muscles in the area, in the vicinity to say, Hey, you know, we need some help doing this. Can you help us out? And so I love that you're talking about activating the inner legs because they, they need to know that that's what they do. That they do add. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They don't do hip extension. They're not, you know, they're not hip extensors. They're not hamstring. I grew up doing ballet and ah. yeah, for many years, I mean, from the age of four until, I mean, I danced through high school, but I stopped the everydayness of it when I was about 13, 14. And I had to completely, you know, there's so much emphasis on turnout in, in ballet. And I really didn't have a lot of natural turnout to begin with, natural rotation in my femurs. So, you know, you take it in other ways. And I feel like it took me years of yoga to just get my legs functioning anywhere close to normally. And I'm also really bow-legged, so I kind of have a lot of weight on the, on the outer foot too. Anyway. I want to kind of just kind of piggyback on that idea of you saying that you didn't have a lot of natural turnout. Because when we were talking before, remember, I, I want to ask you about how your pigeon progress is doing, but I want to share with, with the listeners kind of what we were talking about, about you may or may not be able to ever put your leg behind your head mm-hmm. or do these things because 47% of our flexibility or our resistance to passive movement is provided by our joint structure. So 47% is your joint structure, Mm -hmm. 41% is your muscles, 10% is your tendons and 2% is your skin. And um, that's a study back from Johns and Wright in 1962. Mm -hmm. And so the shape of your bones is going to dictate how you do a yoga asana Mm -hmm. or whether or not you're going to be, you know, a prima ballerina, right. Right. And in your turnout. Right. So then, and again, your nervous system wants to be able to give you that motion. So it's going to steal it from somewhere. If it can't get it from the joints, it's going to just shove it into the joints a little bit more and pull more on those tendons and on those ligaments. Right. I know I'm actually kind of fortunate that I didn't end up more injured than I did from that many years of trying to force things. But yeah, so, so 47% come, you said comes from your joint structure. That's more than the, yeah, than yeah, it's more than the others. 
you know, it's almost equal. So 41% with your muscle and your connective tissue. But again, you know, you can't really do anything about your joint structure for the most part. I mean, you can, but it's usually not positive. Right. right exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they are the rock solid limitations that you, you feel. Yeah. When I looked at your Instagram feed, I saw the, one of the videos you did about the rock floss. I'm very curious about that, but I have one more question I want to ask you before that, which is with your approach to plank that you were describing, can you jump back to that plank pose? I know that you've tested this. There was some theory put out there that you can't jump back to plank safely. You can only jump into chaturanga, quote unquote, safely. So engaging the body the way you described in plank pose, does that make it a more sound position to jumping back to? So more sound. So jumping back to that. So anytime you do plank, you want to do it in that position where you're really activating your core and supporting your low back. I've been trying to figure out like, where did this, you know, demonizing jump back to plank come from? Mm -hmm. I would love to know if anyone has any information. I've been polling lots of people on where the jump back to Chaturanga actually started. And I think it's from the Ashtanga tradition. I think so too. That's what, that would have been my guess. Yeah. But we looked at jumping back to plank and jumping back to chaturanga. Because again, you know, that's something that I used to teach. I used to teach, do not jump back to plank. It's too jarring on your joints. It's going to hurt your low back. It's going to do all of this stuff. And if you're going to jump back, you should do it to chaturanga. And honestly, the only reason why I started looking at this is because of, you know, this theory that, that kind of came out. I was like, well, I should see, because the biomechanical principles that were described that were used to, to say that you shouldn't jump back to plank just were inappropriately used. And so that kind of got, it got me a little fired up. up. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, your body's not a seesaw. We have three classes of levers and, you know, we can talk about that, but so I'm like, you know, I appreciate someone trying to use science to, to, to describe something, but let's at least make sure that we know what we're really talking about and saying and using the terms properly in terms of science and biomechanics. But I wanted to see. So that same very day that I I saw that I grabbed my girlfriend and we went into the lab and I jumped back to plank and I hadn't been jumping back for years. Mm -hmm. I never teach jump back. I just always step back Mm -hmm. because I think the beauty of stepping back is that you get the hip flexor stretch and you get the lunge in there and Anyway, I'm a big fan of that. Mm-hmm. So I, I jumped back to plank. I'm like, I haven't jumped back in a long time. I was like, well, that didn't hurt. Hmm. And again, I use this new plank kind of with the shoulders protracted and the core really engaged. And then I jumped back to chaturanga. And we measured the, the movement of the center of mass, what we think of as the center of gravity. And we looked at the different ground reaction forces. What do you think? Like, you know, you know now, right? So I can't even ask <laughs> yeah, I you. I know, exactly. <laughs> But the ground reaction forces were exactly the same. So the center of mass stayed the same. Like you don't shift kind of your your center of mass forward or back. It's usually around your navel. And again, that's where we found it was around your navel. Hmm. And so your joints are designed, your cartilage is designed to absorb energy. And when you jump back to plank in this position, it's not like you're doing a box jump, right? When you do a box jump, you are doing a plyometric, preloading the system, jumping up and then landing on something where you need to absorb the impact. So mm-hmm. when you're just standing, your ground reaction force is one times your body weight, right? Which is just your body mass times the force of gravity. 
And then when you're walking, you have one foot that's off the ground, swinging and then moving forward. And walking is about 1.3 times, 1.3 to 1.5 times your body weight, depending on how fast you're walking and you know how hard you're landing. And then to put that in perspective, running is about three times your, your body weight, mm-hmm. the ground reaction forces. So that's all that force that your that your body, your joints, your tendons, your all of this has to absorb. And when we jump back from either from Uttanasana to either plank or chaturanga, the vertical ground reaction forces are nearly the same at about 1.4 times your body weight. Hmm. So when you're jumping back into plank, your arms aren't really moving a lot, right? Right. So you're doing forward fold, you're doing halfway lift, you're bending your knees. I mean, you watch Ty Landrum do a jump back and you're like, that is just the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And it's with control and it's this whole floating thing. When you watch Robin Capobianco jump back, (laughs) believe me, it's more beautiful than when you watch Andrea Ferretti jump back. Okay, not. It's probably the same, but maybe we should do a little video of it. <laughs> but but Ty is also bringing his legs all the way up, so he's likely experiencing more vertical ground reaction forces when he lands. Uh-huh. You know, for me or you, you know, jumping back, we're not experiencing these big forces. If we're engaged through our shoulders, engaged through our core, then you know, there's really no danger of jumping back. So one of the things that people cite is they say, well, it's bad for your low back, right? Well, jumping back to either one is bad for your low back. If your core is not engaged, like, you know, we can see this on, on the EMG stuff from the lab is if you're not supporting your belly and your center of mass is actually at your navel. So it's in front of your spine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That center of mass is going to go forward. And the more mass you have around your midsection, right? The more dangerous it will be. And so there's really no reason why we shouldn't, you know, just from a pure, for a healthy individual, just from a purely biomechanical, neuromechanical standpoint, you know, all of your appendages are intact and everything is fine, no injury, why you couldn't jump back to plank or chaturanga, as long as you have the strength, mm-hmm. the control and the engagement to do so. Right. right. So it's interesting. It's almost like the theory that jumping back to chaturanga is safer, quote unquote, than jumping back to plank is probably based on this idea that because your, your chest moves forward a little bit in chaturanga, it doesn't, the the force doesn't affect the lower back as much. Whereas, but what you're saying is that the center, your center of mass doesn't change whether you're doing chaturanga or plank, it's at your navel. Yeah. It's around your navel. Around your navel. So it's not going to necessarily impact the lower back more. It could, it could impact the lower back equally in either pose. Correct. Yeah. The only thing that's happening now is you're, as you're having to use more torque at the shoulders and the elbows and the wrists to land in chaturanga. I was actually always taught not to jump back to chaturanga until you were really, really clear that you had the shoulder alignment and stability. Yeah. Because I mean, think about all of the forces that, you know, are being exerted in those joints, all the torque that you have to produce, and you're doing it eccentrically. So concentric is making it shorter and eccentric is making it longer. So Mm. if you think about when you're, when you're jumping back to chaturanga versus lowering to chaturanga, you're doing it faster Mm -hmm. and you're having to stop yourself. Like 
think about driving your car. And especially if it like out here in Colorado, it's been a little bit icy. So if I slam on my brakes coming to the end of the street, you know, I'm going to lock up my brakes and I'm going to slide through on the ice. If I slowly, slowly apply the brakes, then I'm going to have a more controlled stop. Mm -hmm. Now I'm not saying that you're doing chaturanga on ice, but it's just a way of thinking about the different velocity and the acceleration that's happening in these postures. So if you're lowering down to chaturanga from plank, you can do it with a little bit more control. And if you're, oh, I'm losing control, you can drop your knees down, right? You're very aware of what's going on. You're, you're under control. When you're doing it at this high speed, you know, jumping all the way back, you're depending on the fact that you can make that stop, right? Mm-hmm. Whether there's ice or whether there's not ice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's ice. Right. And you're like, Oh, I landed a little slow. Right. Or I was in too much of a hurry. And then if you land too far down, right, then your shoulders are dipping down and then your head has to come back so that you don't smash your chin on the, on the ground. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's just a lot more work that goes into jumping back to chaturanga. So yeah, you need to make sure that you can do, you know, a chaturanga push up, pretty darn good Mm -hmm. so that you are building up that control. Right. Right. I want to go back to another pose that you brought up because I'm just genuinely so curious. Did you look at lifting the toes in Utkatasana? Is that something that you, because you said you were curious about that. And if so, did you find anything interesting or, or no? You know what I find that's interesting. And I just, I don't know why people lift their toes. Anyway, so I'll go into the actual question and then I'll go into what lifting your toes actually does. Is yes, I looked at this and I looked at the activity of the muscles on the front of the shin and then the back of the calf muscles and it lifting your toes does you know what it does is it activates the muscles in the front part of your shin more uh-huh. that's all it does right it doesn't do anything else to the rest of the posture because we looked at emg in your in your quads so the front part of your legs and your hamstrings and your butt and your back and all it does is it kind of overactivates the front part of your shin so it gets your your tibialis anterior a little bit i mean not significantly but, but that's it. But I don't know why people do that. I mean, mm-hmm. I think they do it to lift their arches. Do you know? Do you have any? I do not know. <laughs> I do not know. <laughs> I think that it, it I, I don't know what they think kind of support, muscular support or engagement it's going to give. But I think maybe there's a thought that it just somehow activates something that makes you feel more engaged. Like jazz hands. Yeah. Just- <laughs> and you know, I mean, yogis are kind of obsessed with the feet, which I think is a good good thing, and having more articulation in the feet. So maybe it's just a way to wake the feet up and activate them in you know in a pose where you might just kind of sink into your feet. That's a, that's a thought. I do teach to lift the toes, like even in Tadasana, I want you to lift and spread your toes and then ground them back down. Mm -hmm. And there's an exercise called short foot that I teach in my movement mechanics class. And it's teaching you to activate the intrinsic muscles of your feet to Mm -hmm. support you and to provide that arch. So I think lifting the toes, like, you know, you do get this arch, you can see like I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm, you know, pulling my toes back and yeah, Ooh, I have this big, beautiful arch. Right. Mm -hmm. But what's also happening is that you're activating the muscles that pull the toes back. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're, they live in the shin, but you're not activating the muscles in the feet. So going back to the short foot, the short foot is teaching you how to use the muscles of the feet. So it's kind of like you're the stepsisters in Cinderella, right? Mm-hmm. They want to put their foot in the, 
in the slipper. So you want to make your foot like a, a half a size smaller mm-hmm. by kind of using the muscles in your feet and not use it, not relying on the toe muscles or the toe extensors to, to create that, hmm. that action. So, and I think, I mean, this is just a theory speculation, right? I have not put needle electrodes into the foot muscles, but I think that pulling the toes back and constantly using that may actually weaken the muscles in the feet because you're not relying on those. You're relying on the arch coming from the tendons of the, of the toes. So, Hmm. you know, so Robin, you are about to finish your PhD. You're applying for graduation in the spring. So have you put the work that you've done on yoga into a manual of any kind, or will you still have access to the lab? I'm curious about how you're going to work on, on this stuff with yoga moving forward. Yeah. So I am working on putting all of this stuff together in a manual. I teach a training called Yoga Neuromechanics. So that's my, my business name that really incorporates neuromechanics into yoga. I show lots of videos and I do lots of demos in the training. I bring EMG into the training that people can see what's actually happening in their muscles when they're doing different things like lifting the toes and Utkatasana. And so, yeah, my, my end goal is to really put all of this, you know, four years of PhD work into, into a book, a manual that teachers can use and also for teachers and for students. So my students are, gosh, they're so amazing. They are hungry for this information. Like when I talk about the nervous system in class, they're like, yes, tell us more. Cause I'm like, do you really care about this? Like, yes. yes. <laughs> well, it's kind of fascinating that, you know, we have this body and it's just for so many of us walking around in day-to-day life, it's, it's largely undiscovered. So it is pretty fascinating. Yeah, it's amazing. After doing all of this research, do you come away feeling like there are just something, some movements I'm that are just inherently quote unquote bad for us? You know, are there any danger warning signs we should heed? Uh, that's a really great question because I don't like to, to demonize different movements, right? It's like, if we can do it, it means that we're designed to do it. But what I really kind of urge people against is practicing so that the shape is the reward, right? So we have these reward centers in our brain and we, we want to feed those because right? that's how we get high. We get a, we get a little a hit when we achieve that posture. And sometimes we do it at the expense of what our body can physically do. So, I mean, there are things that I don't teach. Now, would I say that I think it's dangerous to teach and I would never teach, or I think anyone should never teach? No. I mean, because it all depends. Mm -hmm. I don't like to say never or always, right? Because it really, it it just depends on what you're doing. And we don't know what the long-term consequences of some of the postures that we're doing, they are, right? So Jill had her hip replacement. And there's been several other yoga teachers who've had, you know, different hip surgeries. And there's a great article that looks at cartilage loading in the hip joint with gymnastics and especially over time. And the evidence is very clear that doing the splits is not great for your body. Now, Mm -hmm. if you're doing Hanumanasana once a quarter, or even once a month, and you're doing it in a supported way, and you're engaging your muscles, and you're not 
really going after the aesthetic, like how hard can I push myself? What can I do to get deeper into this? Mm -hmm. Then it's perfectly fine. But I really believe in creating a sustainable yoga practice. And that is, you know, doing the, the postures again, not for the reward of doing the actual pose, but for being in our body and being in our breath and trying to suck the life, the juice out of yoga, mm-hmm. right? Instead of just making it all about the posture. So one of, one of my other favorite books, besides The Story of the Human Body by Dan Lieberman, is Iyengar's book, Light on Life. I've probably given it away so many times and it's so dog-eared and I bought a version for my Kindle. But there's this quote from the, I was just in the introduction. And Iyengar says, yoga allows you to rediscover a sense of wholeness in your life where you do not feel like you're constantly trying to fit broken pieces together. Mm. Yoga allows you to find an inner peace that is not ruffled and and riled by the endless stresses and struggles of life. And so even though I'm a neuromechanist, I am very much a spiritual yoga practitioner. Mm -hmm. So I think what I've really taken away from all of my research is that number one, there are no bad movements, right? There are movements that are appropriate or not appropriate for your body at a certain time and place. Mm-hmm. And that the goal of yoga shouldn't be to attain a posture. It really should be to be in the posture, to be breathing and paying attention to how our breath is changing in a posture. So one of the things that I would say is that if you start to lose your connection to the breath, or you find that your, your breath has now become shallow, where you're getting this reflexive activation of the upper shoulder muscles and this thoracic or chest dominant breathing, you're activating the sympathetic nervous system. So that's that fight or flight. Mm-hmm. So that is negating the purpose of yoga because there's a lot of good research on breathing and especially yoga breathing techniques that, you know, doing ujjayi pranayama, chanting the sound om, doing some of these other different breathing practices, activate the parasympathetic nervous system. So that's that rest and digest. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we start to get all of the real benefits of yoga is we're, we're able to move our body in a way that is affecting our nervous system. The other cool thing that's happening is that exercise promotes the growth of stress protective microbes in your gut. Wow. So my friend and colleague, Aggie Mika, and my, one of my professors, Monica Fleischner, studied stress physiology at CU. And as you're activating this sympathetic branch of your nervous system and exercising, you're, you're protecting yourself against stress. So you're pr- promoting stress resilience. Hmm. And if your yoga practice is stressing you out, <laughs> you're actually having the opposite effect. So what you're doing is actually hurting you versus helping you. Interesting. Hmm. Does that make? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So, yeah. So it's not so much about the neuromechanics or the biomechanics of like, you should never do this. You should never do that. It's not, ma- it's a matter of being intelligent about your movement practice to prevent injury, to support and sustain your body over your lifespan and to get these other physiological benefits that the practice offers that, that we may not get with 
other types of movement practices. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love so that's, so that's a long way of saying. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. I mean, I love that you came to science with the yoga background. So you kind of, you already knew your own experiential benefits. And then I just find it so affirming that you went in, you dug really deep on the micro level to see what's happening, neurophysiology, neurophysiologically, and then you're able to pull back and say, okay, from what I found in the science, there's still, you still have to respond to what's happening in your body in this period of time. Yeah. I find it very affirming. I think there, I think that obviously we can keep getting better at what we do and, and people like you are leading the way and just getting more and more information. And then it's also nice that yoga is still part art form too, you know, that it's still experiential and self self discovery. Yeah, it is. And you know, I was, I was getting ready to talk to you today. I was looking up some different things about learning and motor learning and, you know, how we really feed our nervous system. And, you know, we have this internal model in our brains. We have this sensory and motor cortex and these maps. And yoga is very much a heuristic approach in the fact that, you know, we need to be practically experiencing it. Right. So when you come into a a posture, that's not the very first time that you've come into it and someone's not giving you cues and you're subtly trying to feel how your foot, your angle, your hip, um, your shoulder, how everything is moving. And so you're really doing a, a moving meditation. You're really feeding your your nervous system and you're providing so many benefits all around. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Again, a quote from Iyengar, if we learn reflection and correction in equipoise, movement is detectable and its source is revealed. Then we have acquired the sensitivity that brings self-knowledge, the threshold of wisdom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I can study all of this stuff all day long, but you have to feel it in your body. You have to experience it. You have to be the, the architect of your practice and very much be the artist to find where that works where it works for you. So fitting the alignment to your body, not your body to some prescribed alignment. Mm-hmm. So being intelligent about 47% of your range of motion is going to be the shape of your joints. So if something's not feeling good, do something a little bit different, mm-hmm. right? So sensation, a lot of times is given as the cue, like move into this until you feel sensation. Well, what kind of sensation am I supposed to be feeling, right? Sometimes you don't have a lot of sensation in something and that doesn't mean that you should push further and further. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 So but like, Andrea, I want to ask you a question. Sure. I know what you're going to ask me. <laughs> oh, should I not ask you? No, you can ask me. <laughs> How's your pigeon pose? How's my because pigeon pose? Because when we pose? talked before, we really, we talked a little bit about doing the full pigeon ekapada rajakapatasana, you know, with yes. reaching back for the, for the foot and all of that. Yes. I shared with you that. I am not a person that has a lot of recurring dreams. The one recurring dream I've had for 20 years since I started doing yoga is doing full pigeon pose, like a Padaraja Kapotasana one, bringing my foot to my head. In the dream, I usually bring my toes to my forehead. It's it's hilarious. (laughs) And then I wake up and I feel like I did the pose because I'm very far from doing that pose. So Robin, you were kind enough to give me 
it's actually on your Instagram feed. I can link to it from the show notes page, the book opener stretch. And I'm such a patchwork of issues. (laughs) It's funny. This conversation might help me approach it again, because what I find is I definitely have such asymmetry, which could be a whole other podcast that we could do. It was me asking you about asymmetry. I have such asymmetry between my right thoracolumbar region and my left. So my right thoracolumbar region, it feels tight. It's a t- there's a tiny scoliosis on that side and it just always feels tight. My left feels more open, but my left, I think it's my left, right? Yes. My left quad is very tight and my right quad is more open. So I think that having had this conversation now, I think I should maybe do some rolling on the, on my back. I I, I want to ask you, (laughs) in addition to the exercise you gave me, because it's like, I just can't seem to relax that area is, is the feeling that I have. So I ended up practicing the pose that Ekapada Raja Kapatasana, I think it's four, right? Is the one where you're in a low lunge. I've like lost track yeah. of my poses. I used to know them. So I used to be able to rattle them off when I did master class at yoga journal. Anyway, I did the one where your front foot is in a low lunge instead of in, on the floor, externally rotated. And then I put my shin up the wall and mm-hmm. with my left foot forward and my right foot back, I came a lot closer than I've ever come. Oh, yeah. Interesting. But I think it's still, you know, it's only been a week since we started that conversation. I haven't done it every day or anything like that. So I think (laughs) I still need to work on it and just see. But just knowing that connection of the, the, that diagonal connection of the lats and the glutes is so interesting. Learning that is really helpful as I think about that pose. Some of the things that I found, and still there's so much potential for, to explore so many different things. It's really interesting. Um, I just got this suit, so I don't know if you saw my my bionic woman Tony Stark suit. No. My colleague Dan Feeney in the lab started working for this Bay Area company called Athos, and they make a they make clothing. So they have pants and a top that has EMG sensors embedded into it. Ooh. And I always joke, I'm like, I'm gonna go Tony Stark this yoga class because I pop in my little cores right to. <laughs> <laughs> to power my to power my suit and I'm like ninja in yoga. <laughs> Do you go to yoga classes wearing that or just on your own when you're <laughs> No, I went to yoga classes. Oh my god, that is amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. You're a superhero. <laughs> and, um, I, I mean I didn't wear it to hot yoga. I went to hot yoga yesterday and I won't do it to that because that's just gross. Yeah. But it has these EMG sensors embedded into it. And the reason why I've been wearing it to yoga classes is because you want to kind of feed it with your normal amount of activity so that when I go to do specific types of movements, then it's, it's more accurate. Right. And so I've been kind of feeding and priming the system, but it's interesting because I get to go through and then at the end, it tells me like how much glute activity I did, how much hamstring in the class. And so I went through and I was, I was sharing it with um, the instructor afterwards. And I said, okay, well, here's how much, you know, my glutes I used in your class today. And here's how much of my biceps I used in your class. 
But it showed the asymmetry of that too, where I'm like, wow, I used a lot on my right side. Wow. And we were this really interesting discussion. And she's like, do you think you're that imbalanced or do I think I held it more on one side? I'm like, yeah, I I can't imagine I'm that unbalanced between sides. And I was sharing with her that, you know, Amy Apolity has a class on yoga glow that start with the left because we always start with the right. Mm -hmm. And I thought, gosh, that's so smart because Mm -hmm. how much power, you know, how are we sequencing our yoga classes? Because I mean, I don't use a timer and say, okay, it's been one minute on this side and one minute on that side. Right, right, right. We probably, yeah. Yeah, we're spending in these different things. So the next project that I'm doing is going to be to use this Tony Stark Athos suit to look at the muscle activity with different cues, right? So I would encourage, you know, anyone who's listening, if you have a vested interest in this and you want to know, like hit me up and, you know, make a, make a comment or reach out to me and tell me what, you know, what you want me to explore. Mm-hmm. Cause we're going to be looking at different, different cues and then the use of different props mm-hmm. and like what happens when your knees are bent and down dog. Right. What, mm-hmm. how is that? Yes. Okay. That's taking the, the stress off of your hamstrings, but where is it putting it? Right. Is it putting mm-hmm. it in your shoulders? If mm-hmm. you take a shorter stance, longer stance or a wider stance and something, how is that changing your muscle activation patterns? So I think that that's interesting. Robin, do you have a sure. newsletter or, or do you have like a I YouTube do. channel where you, okay, great. Oh, I don't have a YouTube channel. I'm not, I'm, I'm, Maybe I you guys should do that. Maybe you guys should do that because it's uh, well, we can talk it offline about it offline, but I don't think it's very hard to do. If you're already doing them for Instagram, you would just upload them to there and then they would all be in one place where people could find them. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. It's worth, yeah, that's worth a great idea. About. But I do have a newsletter. Great. So my 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 website is yoganeuromechanics.com. I think you can also go robincapoyoga.com and it will bring you there. Okay. Um, or I'm using fine on, on Instagram. I like to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. But yes, the ball. Oh, the balls, the balls. Yes. <laughs> oh, the ball definitely do the ball. So the studies that I've done have looked at stretching and range of motion with and without balls. And when you add the balls, you nearly double your increase in range of motion than wow. just stretching alone. So with your quads, I would say roll your quads, you know, before you stretch, Mm-hmm. And then roll your back for sure. So a lot of our resting tension in our muscles is neurologic. It's not necessarily a shortness of your muscle. That sensory input, so bringing it back to neurophysiology, adding that sensory input of the balls can help, number one, downregulate the nervous system so that the sympathetic activity is kind of decreased. And then um, it also alters the resting tone of your, of your muscles. So it's going to make them less resistant to stretching. Wow. I mean, I know this from talking to Jill, but hearing it summarized like that is, is great. Roll, 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 roll. roll. Thank you so much, Robin. I can't wait to talk to you again, another time about a whole other realm because you are just so knowledgeable and fun to talk to. Oh, yay. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks as always for listening. I think I say this with just about every one of my guests, but I feel like I could have Robin on 
five more times and talk about so many more interesting things. So hopefully we will have her back again soon. And if you have anything specific that you want to ask her again, you can send me an email to support at Jason yoga, or you can follow her on Instagram and just connect with her directly there. She's there in her Tony Stark suit. I saw her just the other day. I'm going to put links to the books that she mentioned in the episode up on the show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 88. Don't forget to leave an iTunes review if you enjoy the podcast. They keep coming in and I'm always just sort of shocked. Like it feels like a little miracle that someone would take the time out of their day to rate the podcast and or write a review. It's like a really great gift for me and it helps the podcast. So thank you. Thank you. And until next week, enjoy your practice. Mm -hmm.